Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks for making your way back here to join us for another episode of The Mod Pod. This month's program is a wee bit shorter than usual, but there's still plenty to take away. From the October cover focus on cataract and refractive surgery, Robert Chu, Managing Director of iWorks Group in Fort Worth, Texas, examines the economic forces affecting cataract surgery in the article he co-wrote with his brother Richard Chu, who is Medical Director at Chu Eye Associates in Fort Worth, Texas. Let's take a listen, shall we? The need for cataract surgery is greater than ever, as patients increasingly wish to improve their fading vision at an earlier age. This demand opens exciting and unique opportunities for optometrists to help their patients achieve unprecedented vision, to collaborate with their colleagues in ophthalmology, and to generate revenue and growth for their practices. It is estimated that by 2050, the number of people in the United States with cataracts will double to 50 million. At the same time, the number of ophthalmologists is decreasing each year due to aging and retirement. The resulting strain on the eye care system puts optometrists in prime position to embrace a bigger role as primary care eye doctors. This scenario will drive more patients to their trusted optometrists for advice about the many options and technologies available for cataract surgery. Modern lens-based surgical procedures now enable eye care providers to create custom-tailored vision for their patients to match their varied lifestyles. In the past, eye care providers were taught to defer cataract surgery until a patient's objective vision had degraded to worse than a minimum threshold, indicating a so-called ripe cataract. Improvements in outcomes and modern surgical techniques have changed the cost and the risk-benefit ratio. So that now cataract surgery immediately after a patient becomes symptomatic is thought to be both both cost-effective and best for the patient's quality of life. But even with models predicting long-term societal savings from early intervention, the cost of healthcare in the United States continues to rise. One estimate predicts that if costs continue to rise at the current rate, 100% of the U.S. budget will go to healthcare by the year 2040. In efforts to curb the increasing cost of the United States healthcare, the CMS has proposed deep cuts in cataract surgery reimbursement for ophthalmologists in 2020 and even deeper in 2021. In just two years, CMS reimbursement for cataract surgery will have decreased from $654 to an estimated $505.84 for 2021, a 22% reduction. This estimated payment, uh, based on a reduced conversion factor, will be reflected in all cataract-related codes. These financial changes mean that surgeons will have to perform more cases in the same amount of time to earn the same amount of revenue as in previous years. On top of this, ophthalmology has been one of the medical specialties most severely affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. For these reasons, many ophthalmology practices will have to become more efficient in order to survive. 
One way for ophthalmologists to achieve greater efficiency is by collaborating with optometrists to perform pre- and post-operative examinations, while also encouraging patients to choose more private pay upgrades for intraocular lenses and new surgical technologies. To lower costs and increase efficiencies in the OR, some surgeons have started doing in-office cataract surgery in a clean surgical suite rather than at the surgery center. Companies such as IOR partners can construct these surgical suites and ensure that they meet relevant regulatory codes. Kaiser Permanente and some veteran affairs institutions have also implemented same-day bilateral cataract surgeries in efforts to decrease wait times and the number of post-operative visits. New technologies now allow eye care providers to offer patients a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to cure their refractive error and presbyopia at the same time. Improved biometry, latest generation intraocular lens power calculation formulas, and intraoperative aids have all helped to improve the predictability of postoperative refractive results. Most surgeons now achieve refractions within half of a diopter of Plano in more than 70% of their cataract patients, and many reach their goal in 90%. This improvement in outcomes has led to elevated patient expectations for emetropia and spectacle independence. And ophthalmologists have adopted new technologies to help achieve results that match these expectations. Presbyopia correcting intraocular lenses such as the Acrosoft Panoptics Trifocal IOL and the Extended Depth of Focus Symphony IOL offer reduced dysphotopsia, and higher patient satisfaction scores compared with previous generation IOLs. Today, many surgeons are offering these advanced IOLs to patients, reflecting improved confidence in training. Many surgeons have also started treating lower amounts of astigmatism, either through application of femtosecond laser limbo relaxing incisions or implantation of lower-powered toric IOLs. Intraoperative aids such as the Orisys and the Zeiss Callisto I are powerful uh, tools for identifying and efficiently treating astigmatism. Additional IOL technologies are also on the horizon, such as postoperatively adjustable lenses, uh, light adjustable lenses, and adaptable fluid-driven presbyopia correcting lenses. There are also outside-the-box opportunities in postoperative medications and many eye care providers are now using intracameral and intracanulicular steroids rather than burdening patients with complex drop regimens. Optometrists can also sell some compounded postoperative drops in their office. Depending on state licensure, some of these new options and offerings can be performed by optometrists as they prepare their patients for cataract surgery. There will continue to be greater emphasis on collaboration between optometrists and ophthalmologists as the entire healthcare system is being pushed to reduce costs and increase efficiencies. The primary eye care doctor and the surgeon must have excellent communication and unified protocols, which can be made easier with shared electronic records and provider portals. As the quarterback of the cataract experience, the optometrist has the opportunity to help his or her patients maximize their surgical outcomes. Optometrists must become more active in screening and preparing patients for cataract surgery. 
they must be up to date on the intricacies of every new technology in order to properly counsel their patients. These new roles will require optometrists to perform more preoperative medical visits to identify and treat pre-existing disease such as dry eye, glaucoma, and macular degeneration. The presence of any of these conditions can have implications regarding which type of IOL a patient is eligible for. Pretesting to identify irregular topographies or a less than perfect macular OCT can help optometrists flag and treat subclinical disease before referring a patient for a surgical consultation. Embracing new technologies and educating patients about their potential benefits can help deepen the OD patient relationship while also reducing chair time for the MD and increasing the conversion rate for upgrades in the patients we co-manage. To achieve these synergies, it is important for the optometrist to find a like-minded progressive cataract surgery partner uh, with whom to collaborate. By helping patients achieve their best vision, we can strive to retain happy patients and create increased revenue for both optometrists and ophthalmologists. Do you have a better sense of how optometry can help to improve efficiency by participating in perioperative care? Next up is another article on cataract surgery. Kayla Karpuk of the Cleveland Eye Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, reads her article on troubleshooting unhappy cataract surgery patients that she co-wrote with MOD's chief medical editor, Justin Schweitzer, of Vance Thompson Vision in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Get ready for some tips on helping these patients cross the goal line to 20 happy. We have all encountered unhappy patients who are dissatisfied with their outcome after cataract surgery. Often, these patients are at the five-yard line ready to score a touchdown. A key to getting them into the end zone is taking time to explore and understand what is bothersome or frustrating to them. In this article, we discuss the most common reasons patients report being unhappy and suggest solutions to help them cross the goal line from 20 unhappy to 20 happy. Residual refractive error is a common reason for patient dissatisfaction after cataract surgery. Fortunately, this can be corrected with a pair of glasses, contact lenses, or with a corneal refractive procedure. With refractive cataract surgery rising in popularity, it is vital to manage patients' expectations to ensure their happiness with their results. Communicating to patients ahead of time that they may still need part-time glasses, or contact lenses or a corneal refractive fine-tune procedure to get them where they want is important to achieving a 20-happy outcome. It is crucial to manage the ocular surface before surgery, and it is just as important to manage the ocular surface after surgery. In fact, before we even discuss with patients how to approach correcting their postoperative refractive error, we treat and optimize the ocular surface, as this could be the cause of their dissatisfaction and or refractive error. Even if a patient doesn't present with classic complaints of ocular surface disease, for example, fluctuations in vision and foreign body sensation, we recommend pursuing a dry eye workup for anyone who is unhappy with their quality of vision postoperatively. If a patient does have ocular surface disease before surgery, it is important to communicate to the patient the impact this can have on surgical outcomes due to unreliable measurements, ocular comfort, and quality of vision. The reported incidence of dry eye disease in patients undergoing cataract surgery is highly variable. One study evaluated the incidence of dry eye syndrome in patients being screened for cataract surgery 
and found that out of 136 patients, 63% had a tear breakup time of less than five seconds, and 77% had corneal staining. A host of factors can contribute to a poor ocular surface, and undergoing cataract surgery can transiently exacerbate these signs and symptoms. It is important to recognize common ocular surface disease complaints, such as fluctuating vision, reduced visual acuity, and eye irritation, and to initiate a comprehensive dry eye workup in patients who are unhappy with their quality of vision postoperatively. Posterior capsular opacification is a common complication of cataract surgery. It can manifest any time from a few months to years after implantation of an IOL. The incidence of PCO ranges from less than 5% to as high as 50%, and the onset of PCO can create visual frustration for patients and the feeling that their cataracts are returning. Once PCO is identified, a YAG capsulotomy can be performed to get patients back to where they want to be. Positive, negative, and diffractive dyspotopsias are unwanted visual disturbances that can occur after any uncomplicated cataract surgery. Positive dyspotopsias, which patients often report as halos, streaks, or arcs in the periphery of their vision, are most commonly associated with IOL edge design and IOLs with higher indices of refraction. Negative dyspotopsias, which are not as widely understood, are often reported by patients as a dark shadow in their temporal vision. Diffractive dyspotopsias are associated with the diffractive properties of IOLs and are commonly reported visually as halos. Regardless of the classification or cause, it is important to allow time for neural adaptation. If after three to six months the patient's complaint is persistent, it is important to dive deeper and understand how bothersome it is for him or her. If all conservative treatment options have been executed, a lens exchange may be necessary in rare cases. The typical patient scenario for problematic near point occurs when a patient chooses a presbyopia correcting IOL and is not satisfied with his or her near vision after surgery. Despite pre-surgical explanations of reasonable expectations, some patients still expect to see J1 plus postoperatively. No matter the extent of the preoperative discussion, these patients remain dissatisfied. A tool we like to use in these situations is a trial lens set and a few loose lenses. In these scenarios, we demonstrate to patients what their near vision would be if they had selected a monofocal implant. This can be powerful. In some cases, we ask patients to look at their phones or at reading material, and we place two minus 2.5 diopter loose lenses over each eye. When they see the results, often these patients realize that their implants are providing functional near vision. As the primary eye care providers for our patients, we have the best understanding of each patient's visual goals. Armed with this information, we are uniquely suited to educate these patients on their IOL options. After the initial discussion, we can help by communicating these findings to the surgeons we work alongside in order to avoid implantation of an IOL that would not fit these patients' visual needs. For visually demanding patients, expectation management is even more important than it is for more tolerant patients. Spending extra time preoperatively will pave the way for more 20 happy outcomes. We can never overeducate a patient with regard to proper expectations. With elevated patient expectations and the array of options available today, modern cataract surgery is essentially a refractive surgical procedure. 
Technologies and options are rapidly evolving, and patients look to optometrists as their primary eye care providers. They expect us to provide good guidance and educated recommendations. If you adopt these six troubleshooting tools we have outlined here, we predict that you will have more of your patients doing the touchdown spike. The final selection in this month's episode is the odd man out. Any guesses on what it's about? Find out after the Mod Pod takes a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Okay, we're down to the last article of the episode. Like I said, it's a shorty this month. If you guessed that it was on COVID-19, then you're correct. Here's Tracy Offerdahl, an assistant professor at Salis University in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, with an update on oral medication in the COVID-19 era. What a wild ride 2020 has already been. It is likely that none of us ever thought that we would be living square in the middle of a global pandemic. SARS-CoV-2 has challenged people emotionally, spiritually, physically, professionally, and financially. As medical professionals, we surely understand the gravity of this infection, even if we do not fully understand how to navigate it. As we slowly adapt to our new normal, it is vital that we stay up to date on the therapies that might save lives and shape our futures. Like our patients, we hear the news reports on COVID-19 treatments. This article provides a brief overview on a few of the latest trends. After SARS-CoV-2 came to the world's attention, much of the original therapeutic information on this novel viral pathogen came from the little that we knew about Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, SARS-CoV-1. During the subsequent months, researchers and clinicians sorted through more than two dozen treatments from all over the world, none of which had been evaluated in clinical trials. Experts with the World Health Organization, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, and dozens of institutes across the globe have contributed their opinions. Scientists and clinicians assess the diverse pharmacologic choices, the virus itself, clinical trial results, cases, and evolving recommendations. In May, the World Health Organization recommended drugs not be administered as treatment or prophylaxis for COVID-19 outside of the context of clinical trials. This statement was an important step forward because it indicated that plans were in place to standardize the evaluation of drug safety and efficacy to prevent or treat COVID-19. Generally speaking, most data suggests that no drugs currently prevent infection with SARS-CoV-2, but some clinical trials point to several agents that hold promise for treating patients with COVID-19. If I were hydroxychloroquine, I would be having some sort of identity crisis. We have heard both that hydroxychloroquine works to treat SARS-CoV-2 and that it does not. 
We've heard that it works for some people, but not others. We've heard that if the drug does work, that is a good thing because it is so well tolerated. We've heard that the benefits of the drug may not outweigh the risks because the drug is so toxic. Clear as mud. Early in the pandemic, news of hydroxychloroquine's potential benefits for patients with COVID-19 was spread far and wide by the news media. An emergency use authorization was implemented by the FDA. Clinical trials were initiated and case reports began pouring in. An initial evaluation indicated that hydroxychloroquine monotherapy might be safe and effective in hospitalized patients with mild COVID-19 symptoms. When hydroxychloroquine was combined with azithromycin, antipsychotics, antifungals, or fluoroquinolones, however, the risk of serious cardiac effects such as ventricular arrhythmias and QT prolongation seemed to outweigh the modest benefits being reported. In June, the general reception to the data on hydroxychloroquine's benefits was lukewarm. Most trials suggested little to no decrease in the length of hospital stay or mortality when compared with placebo. Some important studies evaluating hydroxychloroquine stopped enrolling patients, and the emergency use authorization was revoked. On August 20th, the IDSA panel revised its consensus statement regarding hydroxychloroquine. The drug should not be used alone or in combination with azithromycin for the treatment of COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. Although some are quick to assume that politics played a role in the rejection of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19, it seems that more effective options for treatment lie elsewhere. Remdesivir was the first antiviral to show consistent activity against SARS-CoV-2. This drug was initially evaluated because it is known to have some activity against Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and SARS. Early in the pandemic, both the manufacturer and the NIH conducted large-scale, multi-center clinical trials to evaluate the efficacy and toxicity of remdesivir in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. The results were so promising that the FDA issued an emergency use authorization on May 1st. Additionally, the NIH discontinued the placebo arm of their adaptive COVID-19 treatment trial because investigators believed the trend in mortality benefit for patients treated with remdesivir was too great to continue enrolling patients in the placebo group. The use of remdesivir continues to be actively evaluated in clinical trials. If the drug's availability is limited, then the NIH recommends that it be reserved for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 who require supplemental oxygen but do not require high flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, as the best mortality benefit initially was shown in this group. If there is ample supply of remdesivir, however, most recent recommendations now suggest that any patient who is hospitalized with COVID-19 should receive remdesivir regardless of severity. Remdesivir is generally well tolerated. The most common adverse effect is increased liver transaminases, followed by diarrhea, rash, renal impairment, 
arrhythmia, and thrombosis in a small number of patients. The use of steroids in patients with infections has had a long and fickle history. This form of therapy can sometimes worsen an infection by suppressing the immune system and by increasing replication and or decreasing clearance of certain organisms. Sometimes, however, steroid therapy lowers morbidity and mortality rates. At the beginning of the pandemic, treating patients who were infected with SARS-CoV-2 with a corticosteroid initially produced confusing outcomes data, mainly because patients who were taking concomitant treatments were included in the analyses. The WHO, NIH, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and IDSA have since issued guidelines on the use of corticosteroids in patients infected with SARS-CoV-2. These recommendations are based upon a variety of factors, including the severity of the disease and comorbid diseases. In non-critical patients infected with SARS-CoV-2, corticosteroids generally are not recommended due to the aforementioned concerns. Promising data from the randomized evaluation of COVID-19 therapy recovery trial were published in the July issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. This multi-center investigator-initiated open-label trial randomly assigned more than 6,000 hospitalized patients with COVID-19 to receive either usual care or usual care plus dexamethasone. The greatest benefits, decreased mortality and a shorter duration of hospitalization, were observed in hospitalized patients who required mechanical ventilation or supplemental oxygen, but not mechanical ventilation. Little to no benefit was found in patients not receiving respiratory support. The IDSA and NIH have used these findings in their recommendations. As this pandemic continues, none of us can know how it will play out. Many of us believe that our greatest chance lies with the development of one or more vaccines. That race is underway with estimates on widespread U.S. availability ranging from the fall of 2020 to late in 2021. This health crisis has brought forth ingenuity and innovation in medicine that we never thought we would need. That is something to hang our hopes and futures on. If you want to read more from this issue, visit modernod.com. Other great articles from the cover focus include one on treating dry eye disease before cataract and refractive surgery by Hardy Kataria, and an IOL roundup by yours truly. There's just one more episode of the Mod Pod left this year. Where did the time go? In just a few weeks, we'll have more great articles for you to listen to while you meal prep, work out, or however you multitask, so be sure to subscribe and sign up for notifications. The November-December issue will focus on the business of running an optometric practice with a subfocus on retina and a few more COVID-related articles sprinkled in, so there will be a little something for everyone. We'll choose a nice selection of these articles for the Mod Pod's final episode of 2020. We'll see you back here next month. And if you haven't already, don't forget to get out and vote. May the odds be ever in our favor.